The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. And thank you all for your gifts to the offering this morning. We'll take it two weeks for the work of DRUM. And they're gonna, we're going to be a sponsor of their denominational-wide worship service. We're proud to support the work and ministry of DRUM and what it does for our denomination and our members. In January, when I was on my, one of my months of sabbatical, I went to the De Young Museum. I was starting to feel about that place the way I felt about a gym that I joined years ago when I was in Washington, D.C. This gym that I would walk by on the way to and from work every day and almost everywhere else I was going. And I think I went three times in two years. I like almost was gonna petition them when I left town to put up a plaque for all the donors because I thought really I was more a donor than a member. And I was determined that this year that wouldn't be true for my membership at the De Young. And part of that is because there are a few places in this universe that I can count on more often than not to feel protective and nurturing and inspiring, like sanctuaries to my heart and soul and mind. Churches tend to be one of them, or houses of worship, particularly if they have aesthetics that invite a sense of soaring um, or nurturing presence. They tend to invite me into those spaces. Another place is actually libraries, though they aren't always as lovely. Though I did notice that the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco was originally our public library, and that felt perfect for me. The presence of books and quiet space and reverence and invitation to go places of the mind and heart that has that same nurturing, protective, inspiring feeling. And the last are museums of these soul-tending places, seeing human creativity, seeing our capacity to and desire to capture beauty or to convey something we feel like is important or to freeze something we cherish in time like a landscape. It's an antidote to so much for me and also a thoughtful museum that uses its power to take your eye and your mind and your heart somewhere that's bigger than just aesthetics. I really value that. And that was my experience going to the De Young in January. I went not knowing much about the exhibit, trusting its curators, as I like to. I had seen one other exhibit there, less inspiring, but I still trusted and went to see the works and the larger exhibit around the works of South African artist Lola Amira. If you haven't seen the exhibit, it's going to be there for a while, and I encourage you to go. If you think I'm going to ruin it for you and that bothers you, you're welcome to plug your ears or go have coffee early, and I won't take insult. <laughs> but I don't think I'll ruin it for you. Amira is a black queer artist who uses the pronoun they to describe themselves. It's a choice that reflects the artist's understanding of themselves and their existence as plural. Here I'm quoting, plural existences, they write, in one body, 
as well as an understanding of the Zulu notion of ayukala, which contextualizes an individual's existence in relation to collective histories and future narratives. Lola Amira's Facing the Future exhibit steps into just that space between the historical and the future and invites us to wonder with them what might be part of that transitional space, particularly as it reflects and is in dialogue with the legacy of colonialism, which of course their home nation very much is in conversation around. The exhibit of their work has two installations, as I would describe it. The first, where you enter, is what they call a site-specific portal. Pilisa is the word. Pilisa, the artist elaborates, are portals or sacred spaces for the cleansing of wounds and the honoring of ancestors and fostering of connection. You enter the space and you're greeted by a bowl of sea salt, invited to place your hands in as you come or as you leave as a way to remove negative energy. Beside you and throughout the entire exhibit are these glass bottles of seawater that have spotlights on them, a reminder, the artist says, of the wounds and the healing powers of the ocean. And the initial space itself is hung with banners or tapestries, some with beads that, that aren't described or explained in this exhibit, but in the Sydney Biennial, the artist describes what the beads sometimes mean for them. The artist calls this space a sacred grove with an invitation to be present to what unfolds for you. But the space is shaped by some larger intention. It seems pretty clear that it's created around a space and an invitation to grieve, all of which is made more apparent by the soundtrack that's playing that's often filled with what sound like cries of lamentation. This is at the beginning. At the far end of this enormous gallery space is another of Amira's installation. This is a 16-minute film called Irmandaje, The Shape of Water in Pindorama. This is Lola Amira's production of Bahia, Brazil. The film documents the artist's journey through the city, walking the shores of the ocean, standing in a rainforest, or overlooking the expanse of landscape at one point, and toward the end, sitting in a circle of older women in a ritual of sharing that we can't hear, but we can watch and imagine the content of. The description of the film says it's Amira's contemplating the wounds of the ocean, of the land, of the descendants of enslaved Africans, while offering gestures toward healing. So we see a theme, intentional and part of the construct. But what's also important in this exhibit is what lies between the two installations. 
which is this huge room filled with pieces of the museum's permanent collection of sacred and ritual masks from Africa, of the stools on which chiefs sat, of instruments sculpted for making sacred music, of decorative statues of gods and sacred figures, of containers for holding an ancestor's ashes, all from dozens of African communities, Yoruba and Ijo people of Nigeria, Grebo and Sapo people of Liberia, Dogon, Dogon in Mali and the Makonde of Mozambique, just to name a few. You walk through and in between this array of sacred objects, of cultural ritual objects, and, and I, I challenge you not to be overwhelmed by the extraordinary diversity and rich beauty and life they speak of, of all of these communities, just these objects, just a piece of representational art and ritual object. And you probably wonder, as you do, right after you're bowled over by how extraordinary each one is, by wondering how they came to be in a museum, ritual religious objects behind glass, tens of thousands of miles away. And right after that question, the question of all that colonialism took. Lola Amira, the artist, in their exhibit about what is between past and present, what we do in that liminal space that asks us how we mourn, how we take stock of the beauty, but also the loss and the wounds of colonialism, how it is we heal, raises all of those questions as we walk through the exhibit without any comment from them on this piece of the exhibit. The theme, one of the themes that you can't help but take away, as is intended, is that theme of grieving. You're left sitting with this theme of grief It's one that I think is coming up a lot lately as we dive into our eighth principle work. And there are so many layers to the grief that comes up in this conversation and work together here and in our world. And I don't think we're anywhere near understanding the layers of grief. Edgar Villanueva, an expert on social justice philanthropy and a member of the Lumbee tribe, who is also author of a book that is called Decolonizing Wealth, talks in his book about some of this grief, describes some of it. He writes, describing just some of it, we, speaking himself as a Native American, we who were colonized have to grieve for the people, the cultures, and the land that were forcibly taken from us. We have to mourn the suffering of our ancestors who were cheated, annihilated, humiliated, raped. We have to grieve for hundreds of years of being disrespected, displaced, and dispossessed. We have to grieve for our children who embody the trauma of history and now have the decks stacked against them as they face the future. 
those who embody what he calls the colonizer's virus, which is this internalized urge to divide and control and exploit, he says they must grieve too. Grieve the fear, anxiety, and mistrust that characterizes a member of the 1%, the survival mechanisms that they must adopt, which include staying walled off, physically and emotionally disconnected, and well-medicated. <laughs> white people have to grieve the guilt that accompanies whiteness. Grapple with the messiness of privilege. You have to come and collect your people, he writes. Settlers and their descendants have to grieve the lives of their ancestors the culture that made their acts of domination and exploitation even imaginable, possible, and acceptable. People who are enslaved, who are claimed as slaves, brought here, and their ancestor and their descendants have a grief that's analogous in many ways to Villanueva's description of those who colonized, who were colonized, I should say with its own unique legacy and wounds. Leaders today if, of every community in this city who are marginalized, part of the Interfaith Council, you hear these stories all the time, both of incredible work and leadership and beautiful accomplishments as part of this city, but also the stories of woundedness, the grief from those. As we do the work of naming and making space for reckoning what has been, with what has been wrought on these shores, and by those from these shores who arrived later, but what comes up in this honest reckoning is, of course, grief. It's also often anger and rage, but I don't know about you, if I interrogate my anger and rage, it's often more an, an energized form of sadness that refuses to sit with the sometimes powerless feeling of sadness but claim agency. Which is to say what Lola Amira was saying with their work that realizing all we've lost in the past and still now, and the layers of that loss, calls out for this need for more spaces to grieve. Villanueva quotes the Curanda um, historian, Curandara, I think my historian, Aurora Levins Morales, in her book, Medicine Stories, who says, ours is a society that does not do grief well or easily. And what is required to face trauma is the ability to mourn fully and deeply all that has been taken from us. But mourning is painful and we resist giving way to it. Villanueva agrees He's well known for his seven steps to healing of the legacy of colonialism. The first that he names, the one before the other six, 
before apologize, before listen to those who have been hurt for how to fix the brokenness, before relate and learn to respect each other, before represent differently who is at the power to make decisions, before invest financially in our values, before do the work of repair and reparation, before all of them, the first step, he says, is grieve. Grieve. And on weekends like this one, when we can't help but look back a little to our own national founding story in the United States, given what we're naming all the violence and grief increasingly looks as much woven into the foundation of the country as the words and deeds of the presidents who get named on a weekend like this one. As we rewrite and retell a fuller, more truthful story of our nation's founding, a big question then that I'm sitting with is how do we make room for the grieving? Because I think Villanueva is right. We can't enter full-hearted and authentically into all the other steps of repair and restoration unless we step honestly into the grief, unless we know that as a place we all stand honestly when we begin, while we look back as we begin to look forward. And I don't have the answer. I imagine we start this work making spaces and giving permission for our own personal and shared feelings of grief the way we did this morning, even if we don't know where they come from. We give permission to others to sit with theirs without any toxic positivity. And I think it's about trusting that if we honor the grief, that we're not going to stay mired in it. And as proof of that, I would offer up something you've probably all experienced. Almost any family funeral. Anyone that started out with heavy grief, anyone that we have hosted in this community and we've hosted one in each of the last three weeks once there's the sharing and the naming and families have gathered both in the service but also together in other venues, a little more broken open, maybe to say things that they have not said before, they always end up, or so often end up, we so often end up in places of laughter and healing and that strange sense that a funeral can have more joy in it and more renewed connection and love than any wedding. Because I think funerals offer this container and space and permission to grieve and all that opens up for us and among us. So we need, as Lola Amira created, those portals, those sacred spaces for the 
cleansing of wounds and the honoring of ancestors and the fostering of connection. In that place between the past and the future that we always stand. So may we make such spaces in our individual lives and in our nation's life and be liberated when we do so. May we become, through such courageous acts of hearts determined to stay soft and strong, may we become a nation that lifts every voice and together sings. Amen. Our emotions are complicated and chaotic, but they aren't supposed to be, right? There's supposed to be a time and a place for everything. A song I grew up with reminds us to everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to laugh, a time to weep. And just because that song was from decades before I was born and based on the Bible, that doesn't mean anything has changed since then. The Pixar movie Inside Out has an armchair evolutionary biology perspective on emotions. We evolved anger to protect ourselves from harm and grief to get support from loved ones in a time of need. Cause and effect. A time for every emotion. Everything with its place and its purpose. But that isn't how it actually works. Not for everyone, not all the time. In the rainy season, it might be natural to have a general malaise to grieve the loss of the sun, especially when we have brilliant pharmaceutical marketers telling us all about seasonal affective disorder with the acronym of SAD. Never mind that some people grew up in the Pacific Northwest and rain makes them feel at peace and connected. Whenever a family member dies, we're supposed to be broken up, we're supposed to grieve. And when someone else dies or a pet dies, we're supposed to keep our emotions a little bit at arm's length, quickly move on. Never mind that the pet may have been our closest companion for more than a decade. We may have only seen our grandparent once a year. And if we grieve when we aren't supposed to, we're depressed. And if we don't grieve when we're supposed to, we're callous and bottling everything up. And we need to get in touch with our emotions. But emotions are complicated and chaotic, not always cause and effect, not always with a place or a purpose. All of the things I just talked about at least kind of make sense, but what am I supposed to do with grief over the heat death of the universe, over inevitable entropy? 
Everyone I know will be gone in a hundred years. The sun will explode in a few billion. And if you believe the current predictions in physics, the Big Bang that happened 14 billion years ago is the last one that will ever happen. And the universe will slowly spread apart and grow cold over trillions of years and all life will cease. Where is the season to mourn the universe? Where is the evolutionary biology reason to grieve something that won't happen in my lifetime or even the lifetime of this planet? Where is the ritual for entropy? And even if it isn't quite as grandiose as entropy, how do we grieve for the abstract things that are beyond us? How do we grieve for the death of a newspaper or a restaurant? How do we grieve for the end of a certain middle-class ideal? Or even the abstract things inside of ourselves? The death of the dream of being a doctor. The end of defining myself by my productivity, my job, by my quick wit. Mourning the person that we were when we were younger. Let me extinguish a candle for the stupid stuff I did in college. A moment of silence because the 80s music apparently counts as oldies now. <laughs> Many of you know that my mom died when I was young. And in the past, I gave a reflection about my grief at that time, about how it upended my whole world. And in the middle of the pandemic, I saw a therapist for a bit, nothing too severe, just general anxiety about the world and my place in it that so many of us were feeling at that time. But my therapist kept wanting to go back to my mom. I think he wanted me to have some kind of unresolved grief or trauma, even though he admitted that whenever we talked about it, he hadn't seen any evidence of that. But his response was normal and natural too, because when someone really close to you dies, you're supposed to grieve forever. And it's not just therapists who react that way. When somebody brings up a death, you're supposed to say, I'm so sorry for your loss, no matter how long ago it was, no matter how much time has passed. I think that's one of the reasons why mental health can be so difficult to talk about. We're always looking for a reason, a rationalization for emotions but sometimes they don't fit into a neat box. Sometimes we aren't grieving because of the death or because of a tragedy. Sometimes there isn't unresolved trauma. Sometimes there isn't a cause or effect. Sometimes there is no season. Sometimes there is no place or purpose for our grief. Sometimes we simply grieve.